In the early 15th century, Joan of Arc spent her teenage years defeating legions of English armies. But come 1431, she faced a force far worse than any British soldier. Their lawyers. She sat on trial in a religious court, subjected to dozens of trumped-up charges. Things like heresy, witchcraft, even disguising herself as a man. All in an effort to discredit her devotion to her religion. Standing across from her, the prosecutor, Jean Beaupère, fired off a loaded question. He asked Joan, Do you know if you are in the grace of God? Suddenly, the courtroom fell silent. He had Joan cornered. The church said no one could be certain of whether they were in God's grace. Say you are, and you're considered a heretic, because you are speaking for God himself. If you said you weren't in his grace, then you were admitting to being a sinner. Joan was literally facing a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't question. She paused for a while before she replied. Then she said, If I am not in the grace of God, may God put me there. And if I am, may God so keep me. Theologically, it was the perfect answer. Beaupère had, like many before him, underestimated this poor peasant girl from rural France. But Joan of Arc wasn't getting out of this one so easily. The English blamed her for their inevitable wartime loss. In under three years, she pulled France from the brink of defeat and sent the English running. Now they wanted revenge. Which is why these interrogations went on for months, all in an attempt to answer one single question. How did this teenager turn the tide on a war that had been raging for nearly 100 years? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Joan of Arc, the 15th century military leader, religious devotee, and ultimately French national icon. History class offers the sanitized version of her story, but the real Joan of Arc was anything but straightforward. This episode will examine Joan of Arc's upbringing and divine visions, her wartime exploits on behalf of France, and her ultimate capture and execution at the hands of the English. Next time, we'll explore a few theories about Joan of Arc's true nature, like her possible royal bloodline, her supposed allegiance to a witch cult, and finally, how she may have escaped execution and returned to France in secret. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. 
This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This is your last chance to enter the Ohio Lottery's Fun Turns 50 promotion. Score $3,500 and two tickets to the epic party at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where you could win part of another $400,000 in cash prizes. Enter the new 50th anniversary scratch-off or $50 worth of eligible non-winning $5 or $10 scratch-offs and My Lotto Rewards through the Ohio Lottery app. Hurry up. The last entry deadline is May 13th. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Everyone knows a little bit about Joan of Arc, French teenager, medieval warrior, and religious martyr burned at the stake. She's perhaps one of the most famous women in global history. But it's safe to say that no one, not even historians of the late Middle Ages, knows her full story. She didn't grow up as a royal, so at the time, scribes had little reason to document anything about her. It wasn't until after she changed the world they even penned a word. But we do know, however, that her story begins in northeast France amidst the Hundred Years' War. Like many wars of the era, it was a classic European throne dispute between royal families, this one taking place between modern-day England and France. Each side saw their own bloodline as the true rulers of the region. Naturally, the common folk of France, now invaded by England, were caught in the middle of this conflict as armies went back and forth, winning and losing in violent cycles. By 1412, the war had been raging for about 80 of its eventual hundred years. At that point, the invading English controlled huge swaths of northern France, including Paris, now, they were pushing even further south. Due to previous treaties, Charles VII of France, also known as the Dauphin, a fancy word for prince, still controlled what was left of his country. And he was single-handedly holding southern France together against their English invaders. But after being accused of plotting the assassination of his father's right-hand man and English sympathizer, John the Fearless, he was stripped of his right to the crown. To make matters worse, he was losing battles and morale. Needless to say, things weren't looking optimistic for the future of France. Then, in 1412, in the small English-occupied village of Doremi, a baby girl was born. 
one who'd be the most influential and unlikely force to enter this long war. Her parents named her Jahan, or as it was later anglicized, Joan. Although no one would have anticipated her fate in her early years, historians describe young Joan as quiet, pious, dedicated to her family, and diligent. Well, not exactly the charge into battle warrior she would later become. In fact, the closest thing Joan did to rebelling in her teenage years was refuse a marriage proposal and maybe visit local churches without her parents' permission. To say Joan was a devoted Christian in her early life was an understatement. Cut to 1425, when Joan was around 12 or 13, she began hearing voices and having visions of divine beings. Being raised a devout member of the Catholic Church, she considered these to be messages from God himself. No one is exactly sure when or how it first happened, but most people agree it changed the course of Joan's story and the history of France immensely. In the beginning, the visions happened infrequently. They encouraged Joan to keep attending church and live piously, essentially things she was already doing. But things changed when tragedy struck Joan's village later that year. Doremi was raided by robbers who stole most of the town's cattle. And although the thieves weren't confirmed to be English, the townspeople felt the war affecting their everyday lives and not in a good way. The people of Doremi believed things wouldn't go back to normal until the English were pushed out of France entirely. But with the war still raging and France on the losing end, there wasn't much hope of that happening anytime soon. For Joan, these events led to a change in the messages she was receiving. One afternoon, while sitting in her father's garden near the church, Joan saw a bright light. According to her, it was followed by a greeting from the archangel Michael. Allegedly, he told her to be good and promised that God Almighty would help her along her path in life. This wasn't a one-time thing. The angels came back again and again over the course of the next three years. Slowly, their messages became less vague and more urgent, more commanding. They started telling Joan that she must save France. She knew she couldn't disobey them, but she had no idea how she was supposed to execute their demands. By this point, France was hanging on by a thread. The 16-year-old Joan certainly wasn't in a position to save an entire country, but the visions kept occurring and Joan was having a hard time ignoring them. By the autumn of 1428, the war had become singularly focused on the French city of Orléans. There, the English were laying siege to one of the last French territories. Geographically, Orléans sat on the border between the English-occupied French lands in the north and the Dauphin's army in the south. Everyone felt Orléans would be the deciding factor in the war. If it fell, that was essentially the end for France. It wasn't until all eyes turned on Orléans that Michael and the other angels finally told Joan of Arc 
what she needed to do. She had to save the city. She had to save Orléans. But that wasn't all. The angels were asking for a tall order from Joan. Essentially, she needed to leave Doremi in English-occupied France, travel 300 miles south into French territory, find the Dauphin, and convince him to follow her. Then, she had to travel back to the battle lines in Orléans, push back the English siege, and escort the Dauphin north, deeper into occupied lands, so that he may be properly crowned in the city of Reims. And frankly, Joan didn't want anything to do with this. According to historians, she, quote, would rather be torn in pieces by wild horses than leave the village of Doremi. But as a religious devotee, she knew she had to obey the divine commands, no matter how low her chances of success were. Or how likely it was she'd be killed trying. So, in February 1429, in the dead of winter, Joan left the region with an escort of six men. They were assigned by a duke who was impressed with followers she had accumulated to accompany her. For the journey, Joan donned men's clothes to not draw attention to herself, a habit she'd continue throughout her battles and much of her short life. Traveling only at night to avoid English soldiers and their French allies, Joan and her six men made the journey to the Dauphin in Chinon, France. It took 11 stressful days. For Joan, reaching the doors of Charles VII's home was just the first of many challenging checkpoints in her mission. Now, it was time to pass the next test, convincing the Dauphin of her divine prophecy. Luckily, God had armed her with a secret, a message no one but the Dauphin could possibly know. Coming up, Joan of Arc's transformation from soothsayer to warrior. They're responsible for some of the most horrifying acts of violence ever known, men and women who went to lethal extremes. But why? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, follow the life and crimes of an actual murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers examines the psyche of a killer, their motives and targets, and law enforcement's pursuit to stop their spree. Listen now and catch our special series on manhunts, where we follow the processes police use as they hunt for murderers in treacherous terrains and unusual locations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. 
Terminexit. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now back to the story. In March 1429, 17-year-old Joan of Arc made her way to Chinon, France, seeking an audience with the 26-year-old Dauphin, Charles VII. She had one very important task, convince him her religious visions were real. She believed she'd been selected by God to help France defeat the siege at Orléans, after which she'd escort Charles VII to Reims for his rightful coronation. Problem was, the only proof she had was her word. When Joan finally stood before Charles, she didn't play it coy. Instead, she proclaimed before everyone, Most noble Lord Dauphin, I have come and am sent by God to bring aid to you and your kingdom. Nice words, but kings hear praise all the time. Sure, but Charles must have seen something special in Joan, because after that greeting, he pulled her aside. The bulk of their conversation happened quietly, out of the earshot from the rest of the court. To this day, only Joan and the Dauphin know what words were exchanged, but we can piece together the context from some other witnesses in the room. Attendants noted that Joan and the Dauphin spoke for quite some time, and when he listened to her, he was attentive and, quote, joyous. Another witness said Joan had told Charles, quote, a certain secret that nobody knew or could know but God. And that's why he came to trust her so quickly. Whatever Joan said to convince him, it worked. The Dauphin welcomed her and her escorts into his circle with no hesitation, and together they prepared for the next step of their shared mission, liberating Orléans. Joan had already transformed from a quiet peasant into a conduit for the divine. But for her next trick, she had to level up. She needed to become a warrior. Joan had never been to battle before. She had no official training. In fact, she didn't even have the proper wardrobe. So she took to a local metal worker and had a suit of armor custom made for her petite frame. Five curving steel plates protected her neck. Three more covered her hips. There were shoulder plates, steel sleeves with elbow hinges, plus a literal skirt of steel. Joan also donned a helmet custom built with a visor. And over it all, she wore a lavish cloak made of velvet and gold. Just picture Joan of Arc, suited in her armor, riding a white horse, carrying a large fork-tailed linen banner emblazoned with a French fleur-de-lis. It's no wonder this image has captured the attention of historians, both of our era and of Joan's. Allegedly, the Dauphin himself had funded Joan of Arc's transformation. She was no longer just a soothsayer. Now, she was France's warrior icon. And with her looking the part, the Dauphin embedded Joan within his army. The Dauphin's troops probably weren't thrilled to be led by some unknown teenager. 
Undoubtedly, but it's important to understand they weren't thrilled with how things had been handled by the Dauphin up until this point either. French troop morale had reached dangerous lows. When they weren't being defeated on the battlefield, the soldiers felt uninspired and bored. Most of the military men were cynical about the war and their place in it. They were desperate to reclaim some self-respect, or more importantly, some sort of purpose. Joan's piousness and devotion to God gave them exactly that. Once embedded, Joan made herself an authority in their ranks. She insisted soldiers stop swearing, start attending mass, and stop behaving indecently. Beyond instilling discipline, her morality-centric edicts also held practical benefits. The army started gaining more goodwill from the public. Previously, towns had reason to fear both the English and French armies. Regardless which side captured a town, to the victor went the spoils. But with Joan's new rules against plundering, the French began uniting under the Dauphin and seeing him as the leader they were so desperately in need of. Joan also fostered an air of respect. To a kingdom that had been war-torn, chaotic, and all but defeated, Joan of Arc came to personify the hope of divine assistance. She turned a long and meaningless Anglo-French conflict into a true religious war. And the French really believed God was on their side. Those uninspired and bored troops suddenly believed they had divine protection and a holy mission. By the end of April 1429, Joan of Arc and the Dauphin's newly energized army had reached the city of Orléans, and they were ready to fight. Orléans had been besieged by the English and their allies since October of the previous year. Months of attacks, isolation, and bitter cold had left its residents in desperate need of provisions and reinforcements. Joan was the one to deliver it. She snuck into Orléans with those supplies and from inside the city inspired the French to a passionate resistance. Days after Joan's arrival, the revitalized French forces began fighting back against the English. Joan personally led the charge in several battles around the city. However, it's said that Joan never actually participated in the violence herself because she was so committed to her mission with God. She did, on the other hand, outline military strategies and direct the operations. Primarily, she served as a rallying champion on the battlefield, pushing overwhelmed and retreating troops forward towards victory. On several occasions, French commanders just wanted to let their offensive rest after modest success. But each time Joan encouraged them to attack the next English stronghold around the city, never stopping until Orléans was firmly in the hands of the French. By following her lead, they ran the English ragged. On May 7th, after a week of fighting, Joan herself was struck by an arrow. But in true form, she returned to the fight triumphant. The following day, on May 8th, the English army officially retreated from Orléans. 
Joan, a mere teenager, had liberated the city. It was yet another waypoint in her impossible mission commanded by God. But her work wasn't over. She was still one step away from fulfilling her prophecy. Next, Joan set out to clear the path and get Charles to his coronation. She'd have to escort him from Chinon, which was deep in French territory, to Reims, a city now deep in English territory. Joan's angel-given mission was sometimes at odds with her military strategy. In her eyes, the goal was simply to get Charles to Reims. There would be plenty of small French towns that needed liberation from the English along the way, but Joan had to keep her eyes on the prize. She couldn't get distracted from the objectives given to her by the angels. However, there were a few times where Joan made an exception. If it helped clear the path to Reims, Joan aided in the retaking of these captured villages, and she was just as successful as she was in Orléans. A string of victories came fast. First, she cleared the Loire River Valley of English troops. Soon after came the Battle of Pate, where the French captured several key English military leaders. From there, the march to Reims continued at full speed. With little hope of a relieving army coming to their rescue, English-occupied towns submitted to the French army and to Joan's fast-growing reputation. The French military pushed forward with great speed as everyone knew. What was wildly unlikely just a few months ago, now seemed inevitable. The Dauphin's coronation was imminent. On July 16, 1429, less than a year after being commanded by the angels, Joan of Arc, the Dauphin, and his army entered the city of Reims. The very next day, at a local cathedral of Notre Dame, the Dauphin was crowned Charles VII, the King of France. In her book, Conquest, historian Juliet Barker noted, quote, the coronation was an emotional moment for all those who had fought, not just in battle, but in the pursuit of a reclaimed throne. With this, Joan of Arc had achieved the impossible. Against all odds, she convinced Charles to follow her visions, liberated Orléans, pushed into occupied territory, and led the Dauphin to his rightful coronation, exactly as the angels had asked her to do. Sure, she'd completed every aspect of her challenging God-ordained mission, but her divine protection wouldn't last her forever. Coming up, Joan of Arc is captured by English allies. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the Launch Your Online Shop stage, all the way to the 
we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now back to our story. It's August 1429. After years of trying to reclaim his rightful seat on the throne, Charles VII has finally been made King of France. And thanks to a 17-year-old girl, the English were proverbially now shaking in their boots. Seeking peace, the first point on the king's agenda was to push for a 15-day truce in the areas of France still occupied by English forces. This included the city of Paris. Charles hoped the truce would allow for permanent peace negotiations. And while Joan of Arc was initially hopeful about the talks, it quickly became apparent the English had no interest in compromising. Joan was livid. She considered England's refusal to negotiate for peace dishonest, if not treasonous. While her divine mission was now complete, she still had an army at the ready. So, Joan decided if England wasn't going to play ball, Paris would be the next city they conquered. It was an ambitious move, and it depended on their fellow countrymen living in Paris to help. They needed them to stage a revolt. But that revolt never came. Instead, the French army was forced to lay an arduous siege of Paris, during which Joan took a crossbow to the leg, leaving her seriously injured. And it was all for naught. When the battle ended, the French found themselves defeated. Paris remained under English control. The fast victories Joan and her men were used to were no longer happening and the failed attempt to reclaim Paris sowed doubts among her supporters. Before the siege, Joan was seen as an infallible wartime leader with God on her side. Victories were prophesied and fulfilled with ease. But even Joan would admit that reclaiming Paris was her decision, not a divine command. And perhaps that's why her plan failed so miserably. After Paris, people began to wonder if Joan of Arc was ever really a messianic heroine to begin with, or if she was just another warrior who used religious rhetoric to reignite the flames of war. Others began to see her as, quote, not only fallible, but unpredictable and uncontrollable. Before the French could suffer any more military losses, King Charles VII tapered back his offensive moves especially the ones recommended by Joan. Instead, he shifted his focus back to negotiating with the English. Without a lofty divine purpose, Joan of Arc led smaller battles around northern France. But with her winning streak clearly over, King Charles decided to retire her from the field. He made her a noblewoman, but Joan was still unsatisfied. She felt called to the battlefield. Without the military support of the king, Joan went rogue with a band of volunteers and mercenaries to aid in a fateful siege of the small town of Compiègne. That's where, in May 1430, she found herself surrounded by enemy forces. 
Joan of Arc was yanked from her horse by Burgundian troops, who were French allies of the English. She was paraded in front of other soldiers and military leadership. Now, there was no way out. The English knew what a propaganda coup this was. Immediately, they sent boastful letters to the major towns in the area, announcing they'd finally captured the Joan of Arc. The French military icon was now an English wartime prisoner. Over the next year, Joan was subjected to a lengthy and arduous trial at the hands of her captors. In the enemy stronghold of Rouen, France, an English religious court threw the book at her. When her trial began in January 1431, she was charged with a whopping 70 crimes, ranging from sorcery to horse theft to heresy, witchcraft, and violating divine law for dressing like a man. By May of that year, most charges had been dropped, but she still faced accusations of 12 separate crimes. Because this was a religious court, most of them were related to her wearing men's clothes and claiming that God had contacted her directly. For the English, the primary political reason for prosecuting Joan of Arc was to discredit King Charles VII. After all, if Joan of Arc was found guilty of heresy, then Charles' legitimacy would take a hit. Everyone knew he owed his whole coronation to Joan and her divine powers. For over a year, Joan fought these charges in six public and nine private examinations by her captors. Over and over, they tried to prove she was lying to get her to perjure herself or in some way delegitimize her in the eyes of the French public. But Joan of Arc remained steadfast. Historians note how carefully she always replied, stonewalling prosecutors, even after long periods of questioning. Rather, Joan projected the confidence of someone who knew her fate was decided by God, not the court. But the actual trial was a battle to be lost from the very beginning. She had worn men's clothes, and she did claim that God directly contacted her, both of which were punishable crimes at the time. There was no getting around it. Joan of Arc was found guilty, and the sentencing was extreme. On May 30th, 1431, Joan was handed over to the local executioner in Rouen. Her death was to be made into a public spectacle. A massive pyre was built just for her in Rouen's Place de Vieux Marche, their town square. Joan, draped in several layers of clothing, was lifted high onto the platform and tied to a stake. Before the pyre was lit, she begged a Catholic priest in the crowd to hold a cross high into the air so she could see it. She wanted to shout her prayers toward it as she burned. Then, in front of the assembled crowd, the executioner lit the pyre. As the flames rose, Joan cried out, Ah, Rouen, I fear you will suffer for my death. Ironically, part of the job of being an executioner is saving the prisoner from suffering too long. But in this case, 
The English had built Joan of Arc's scaffold unusually high. The executioner could not reach her to help relieve her of her misery. Which may have been done on purpose. Instead of a quick death, Joan likely succumbed to smoke inhalation as the pyre burned her alive slowly. When the flames finally died down, the executioner pushed the charred wood aside. Allegedly, he even showed the crowd Joan's body to assure them the 19-year-old woman was dead. But the English weren't finished having their way with one of their greatest enemies. According to some records, the Cardinal of Winchester ordered Joan's body to be burned a second time. Surprisingly, her organs survived this inferno as well. Then, a third burning was ordered to destroy her body entirely. Though I will note that other accounts, such as that of the actual executioner, never mention this occurrence. Regardless, the cardinals eventually called for her ashes to be collected and hurled into the Seine River. The English wanted to completely destroy Joan of Arc in hopes of destroying all she had done in service of her country. She had made Charles VII king. She brought France back from almost total defeat. Now the French would win this war because of her. But the worst part was, even before her death, Charles VII had abandoned her. After her capture, Charles felt it was no longer politically beneficial to be associated with an accused heretic. For all King Charles owed Joan of Arc, he never made a single effort to save her life. Unless his inaction is actually a sign he knew something else about her capture and execution. That the real Joan of Arc didn't die in Rouen's Place de Vieux Marsh. Next episode, we'll try to answer that very question as we cover three conspiracy theories about Joan of Arc. Like conspiracy theory number one, that Joan of Arc was actually a hidden member of the French royal family. Or conspiracy theory number two, Joan of Arc's religious devotion wasn't to the church, but rather to a pagan witch cult working against the Catholic church. And conspiracy theory number three, that Joan of Arc secretly escaped execution and returned to France many years later. Historians admit we don't know the half of Joan of Arc's real story. Like, what did she whisper that fateful day to Charles VII? Or where did her visions come from? And most importantly, who was this teenage warrior and what was her mission exactly. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time exploring the parts of Joan of Arc's life they keep out of the history books. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. 
Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Eric Cunningham, edited by Aaron Lan and Lori Gottlieb, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Bradley Klein, recorded by Freddie Rivera, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Juan Borda. Our hosts are Carter Roy and me, Molly Brandenburg. Dahmer, Bundy, Gacy, Ramirez. You know the names, but do you know the whole terrifying story? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, take a horrific journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Some were charismatic, others were calculated, but all of them were disturbingly deadly. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.